0: yet another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, Debbie Elias. And we get where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers and movie and television makers uh, of everything you're seeing on the big and small and streaming screens today. Um, Very excited. And last week, it's Thanksgiving week. It is the last week in November. We've got three more shows left after this one for 2019 and then we'll start a new decade uh, and another year of behind the lens um, and this week with this Thanksgiving week, I'm just very grateful for all of our all of our live listeners, our podcast listeners and all of my readers around the world in print and online. Uh, and of course you can find plenty of movie reviews and interviews from me on behindthelensonline.net uh, and we're also popping a few trying to pop a few more up uh as video slideshows on our YouTube channel as well. Very exciting day. It's a very exciting week. Uh awards uh, awards nominations are getting announced. Um we just had the Spirit Award nominations announced on Thursday morning. Uh, as all of my regular listeners know, um, this is the 35th year of Spirit Awards. Uh, it is one of my babies. Uh, this will be the 30th one that I have covered. Uh, I'm very proud of that um, and and privileged to have been able to watch Film Independent and the Spirit Awards grow and really help, you know, be at the forefront of shining a light on independent films. Um, Some of the great nominations that came out, Best Feature, A Hidden Life, Clemency, The Farewell, Marriage Story, and a real surprise, Adam Sandler's Uncut Gems. Adam Sandler also picked up a nomination for Best, I think it's on here, I have my cheat sheet, Uh, yes, Best Male Lead. Uh, for his performance in Uncut Gems. Uh, of course, he's going up against one of my picks, uh, Matthias Schonarts for the Mustang. Uh, Film, uh, the Film Independent Spirit Awards come to you live on IFC from the beach in Santa Monica on February 8th, the day before the Oscars. Uh, it's always an incredible time. I, of course, will be on the red carpet and in the press tent with the winners uh, after they pick up their hardware. But I'm really looking forward to this year's awards being the 35th year. Hopefully, uh, film independent president Josh Welch has something special in mind for us. But just some more examples of the great nominations uh, with the Spirit Awards. Uh, Best Supporting Female, Jennifer Lopez for Hustlers uh, is, a, is a big one. Octavia Spencer, um, Best Supporting Female for Loose. Uh, Honey Boy, Noah Jupe, Shia LaBeouf, um, a lot of love for Honey Boy happening, and also for the Mustang, which, uh, as all of you may may know, we uh, you've already heard Matthias Schonard's interview here on our show uh, that picked up a Best First Feature nomination, along with Smart directed by Olivia Wilde, and Diane which I'm very por- partial to, produced by my friend Oren Moverman uh, and directed by Kent Jones. Uh, Best Director nominations for a Spirit Award were picked up by Robert Eggers for The Lighthouse, Alma Harrell for Honey Boy, Julius Ona for Loose, Benny Softy and Josh Safdie, former Spirit Award winners for Uncut Gems, Lorene Scafaria for Hustlers. Um, you know, so many gr- and. Great, great nominations. I think a surprise to a lot of people, not to me, was Tyler Cook picked up a best editing nomination for Lynn Shelton's Sword of Trust, one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, the Robert Altman Award for Best Ensemble, uh, is it goes to Marriage Story and uh, Noah Bomback. And Pam, what is beeping in my ear? I keep getting beeps here. We have something weird going on with the sound today. Okay, well, who knows? Uh, we move on. But so, mark your calendars for the Film Independent Spirit Awards on February 8th, 2020. Uh, that's going to be a fun day at, at the beach. Uh, and of course, Los Angeles uh, Online Film Critics Society, of which I am a member. Uh, our award, Our nominations are being announced this morning. They're trickling out one at a time, so I don't have a final list uh, to look at. Um, I'm looking to see. Best First Feature, we have nominated Brittany Runs a Marathon, Book Smart, Honey Boy, Peanut Butter Falcon, Queen, and Slim. Uh, best Independent Film, Book Smart, The Farewell, Honey Boy, Loose and Waves. Uh, Best Animated Film: Abominable, Frozen 2, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, Missing Link, Toy Story 4. Uh, uh, best Comedy or Musical: Book Smart, Blinded by the Light, Dolomite Is My Name, Longshot, and Rocket Man. Um, so uh, I have, I will admit, I'll be the first one to admit, I'm not happy with some of the nominations that our group has come up with, but they are what they are. Um so we'll see what plays out. Uh some very interesting interesting choices here. Um so once I see a final list that'll be up, I'll have that up on my website. And as for behind the lens today. Today is International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And I'm very excited at the half hour point of the show our, our special guest uh, is Jarrett Martino, writer-director Jarrett Martino, is going to be with us to talk about his new film, Donna, Stronger Than Pretty. It's a story, it's his mother's story, uh, his mother Donna. It is a compelling story. It's very well done. It boasts some very good performances. He made it a narrative as opposed to a documentary. So Jared is going to be joining us to talk about this film and also the launch of a film festival that he is involved with, Love Wins Film Festival. So we're going to get the whole scoop from him when he joins us at the midpoint of the show. But right now, I'm very excited. You heard me talking about it last week. Dark Waters, one of my picks for the year. It is an amazing film, uh, directed by Todd Haynes, starring Mark Ruffalo. It is the story of attorney Rob Billette and his battle uh, against DuPont Chemical Company. This is a must-see film for everyone. Um, the litigation and the battle that Rob and the Taft law firm have been fighting for more than two decades... Affects every single one of us, and it boils down to DuPont's dumping of the chemical that is commonly known as C8, Um, and putting it into all of their products. You have a Teflon pan in your house; you've got C8. That's what—that's the core element of Teflon. You have non—you have carpets that you know repel water and stains. C8 is in there. Uh, it is a store. It is a film not to be missed. It is a powerhouse film. The script is amazing. Uh, first draft was written by Matt Carnahan, and then Mario Correa picked up uh, the mantle. And it's based on Nathaniel Rich's blockbuster New York Times article on this DuPont chemical story and Rob Ballot's battle. Um, you will not be able to look away from this screen uh, as you watch the film I spoke with production designer Hannah Beachler last week Uh, Hannah whom I adore and it's far cry from Wakanda Hannah is the one who did the production design for Black Panther and for all you Marvel fans out there she's coming back for Black Panther too. so I can't wait to see the world of Wakanda and how it expands for that but Todd Haynes, you know him from his from directing Wonderstruck, Carol, I'm not there, far from heaven, uh, and the acclaimed Mildred Mildred Pierce miniseries, and that's a tough act to follow when you've got, as history of Mildred Pierce, Joan Crawford, um, Todd is an incredible director, and he truly, this is out of the wheelhouse for him that. He's not known for a film like Dark Waters, but he really brings it to the forefront. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Todd Haynes talking about Dark Waters. Hey, Todd. Hey, Debbie. I am so happy to talk to you for our every two-year conversation. (laughs) Thank you. For me to see Dark Waters... I've been following the DuPont litigation since I was working in law full time back in the 90s. God. And wow. actually, I actually worked on quite a number of toxic, toxic tort litigation cases. And wow. thanks to what Rob did and the discovery that was amassed, because as discovery came out, nothing was under seal and he and the firm would they would disseminate it to other attorneys around the country when you reach out and say hey you've been working on such and such do you have anything yeah. that we can use so yeah. I have followed this religiously even when I stopped law full time I have maintained following the individual cases after that ridiculous wow, cor-
1: incredible.
0: after that ridiculous court ruling that wouldn't certify a class um, right so for me to see this whole thing come to the big screen and the way you've presented it, this is, for my money, it is one of the top three best pictures and must-see films of the year.
1: Oh, thank you, Debbie. That's so nice to hear. Thank you so much.
0: This is not an easy an easy subject to tackle in and of itself. We've seen other films right. try and address environmental contamination and issues but this is a true story it's ongoing and yeah. you could have very easily made this a legal thriller you didn't this story it humanizes not only does it humanize attorneys uh, <laughs> but you it, you have it structured and presented so that this will resonate with every person on the planet everyone is affected by this film and the way that you bring it to life and particularly with Ed's work rather than waste exposition um, people are going to be able to understand the significance and the importance of this story and my hats off to you because I know it is—it's not easy to even craft motions and briefs for juries, the average layperson on a jury to understand, let alone a whole movie-going audience.
1: Yeah. Well, Debbie, thank you. That's that's so that means so much to me. Given your back, your 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 background and the specificity of your your own experience, that that really. Uh, that that you know, just to hear your reaction and the way you, you characterized how we you know how the film worked for you, it was exactly our goal.
0: You know, something that I know that Mark had this and came to you with it, and we haven't seen a film like this from you before, Todd. We really haven't, and I'm curious as to ha- your approach to this story, to in terms of maintaining authenticity. But then establishing that relatable, resonant thread of economic contrast uh, between right. the haves, the haves-nots, but the common, sure. the shared commonality.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, look, this 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 project, the the thing that I'm still sort of reeling from is how quickly this all happened, um, because it's really it's only 2016 that the the New York Times expose mm-hmm. appeared. And a year later, uh, Mark was already teamed with a uh, participant and they had a, a writer on and he uh, wrote a first draft of the script and that's what first came to me in 2017. Uh, 2000, yeah, 2017. And, and I... I, I was catching up to the story. I, you know, the story is staggering and enraging and shocking. Um, and, and, but I, uh, but I also felt, and Mark and I talked about it right away, that, that we felt like it needed to go deeper. And the, the urgency of getting it made was all appropriate for the relevance of a story like this. Mm-hmm. Today. But, that we also had to protect the quality and the depth of it and the nuances of it. And, and how unlikely a series of people came together and joined forces so many accidents, you know, that linked a uh, Wilbur tenant to a Rob Ballot. You know, there's no way a typical plaintiff's attorney could have taken this case on nope. <laughs> and penetrated that amount of, discovery you know he it needed to be a corporate defense firm with the size and the overhead and the you know money of a tax law that could that could support and allow a lawyer with the unique tenacity of and an, an honest brokering and of a Rob Block you know and it probably needed a Rob lot who happened to have a kernel of his past cross into this exact region of the country, this exact mm-hmm. town, literally neighboring the farm of Wilbur Tennant, where he would visit as a child, like those series of personal accidents as well, that would make any corporate defense attorney stop and go, okay we'll take a look at this, right? So it was just one thing after the next that, that that lined up. And it made for a network of characters and a kind of supporting, you know, this ensemble of people whose, co- whose interdependency was so essential to this case uh, moving forward. Uh, the medical monitoring uh, mm-hmm. ruling, really, I mean, un- unbelievable that that, that, that would have occurred in West Virginia the year before Rob needed to apply, apply it to a case to establish the toxic effects of an unregulated chemical. Right? Mm-hmm. All of these things. There's just one thing after the next. Uh, but the thing that I think ultimately I felt um, this story needed was, was something I guess, you know, or, or, or why I felt that it should be a movie, you know? That it should be a dramatic film and not a documentary or is something about the human cost of it and the trial that these people are put under that I feel the pain of, uh, uh, of what the whistleblower undergoes that reminded me of great examples of this kind of story that have incredible cinematic resonance, mm-hmm. like All the President's Men or Silkwood or Insider, movies that I love and music, movies that I go back to and that people don't necessarily associate my my work with. And I'd never been offered a project like this before and for some unbelie- unknown reason, uh, or at least whatever it wasn't. I was surprised that that Mark thought of me for it. Not knowing how much I love these kinds of movies when they really have that brooding complexity of real life.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and and it's the authenticity in the real life portion. I mean, this you're very right when you say that no plaintiff attorney can afford a case like this. Right, you have. Right. To, it's got to be an insurance defense firm or a corporate defense firm. Um, right, that can roll the dice. Um, yeah. So they've got the billables coming in to support something. Office supplies alone, which I have, I commended Hannah. I've got to commend you. Um, I told her, I said half of the budget must have gone for paying for buying enough Red Wells and banker's boxes. Um, uh, but that that level of detail, but uh, you know, that you bring, but all of this, we're, this really all hits home. The one scene that I think is going to resonate with everybody is going to be the montage that sets up the timeline as Rob is freaking out at 2 o'clock in the morning and ripping the carpet up and taking everything out of the kitchen cabinets, and he starts to tell Sarah, lay it all out for her as to, I'm not going crazy. This is what we're dealing with. And in that montage, Todd, you nail this film and this story so succinctly there is not a person around who is not going to understand the gravitas of this situation.
1: Right. No, I, thank you. I mean, I owe the concept of that parallel montage where he is beginning to tell the story to his wife <clears throat> and then continues the story to his, to his senior partner mm-hmm. and then continues the story to the DuPont council and but it you know instigates a series of flashbacks of the process and and this kind of a movie you have to stay close enough to the process to elicit the viewer's interest and a sense of suspense about what he's going to find next mm-hmm. but you also have to let the character you kind of have to lose him in the process also and he almost gets buried alive by the process. And so this montage comes just the moment where we need to get back into Rob, and we've lost him for a little moment, and he's in big, wide shots, you know, Mm -hmm. buried alive by the discovery. And we want to know, what does it all mean? And we also see Wilbur reach a point of emotional sort of a critical mass of, of a mm-hmm. vet where his house really was getting ransacked and helicopters really were swooping down over his property and so low that he could read the license plates and he took out a rifle and, and they saw that he had a rifle and then you know there was just all the everything that you see in the movie is really from what
0: really it's happened. true. Yeah.
1: So you feel the you feel that that sort of sense of, of contagion of of suffering that and and of the pressures and the the pushback of power on the individuals that alienates all of them from their communities and their families, and and in a way they're linked that way, but they're also separated. Even you know they're also pulled apart from each other that way. And mm-hmm. So that's that that's that knife, that twist of the knife that that I feel is how we we connect, you know, emotionally to the story with these people because. Let's face it, this is a story about third-hand information. Yeah. It's not a journalist going out and interviewing somebody, and you, you knock on the door, and you hear their testimony in the scene, and they start to cry. You know, this is all accumulated information that he's gone back over decades to piece together. And so there had to be a dramatic method for keeping an audience engaged. And I, uh, it started with Mario Correa structuring it this way when we rewrote the script. And then it played out into how it was edited and the pacing of it, and then how it was scored. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a single, almost improvisational piano piece that runs for almost eight minutes over this entire section you're talking about. And anything, like, lighter than that would not hold it together, and then anything heavier than that would start to make you feel, like, too overdetermined. It would feel too overdetermined. It had to have that right balance, but it holds the entire sequence in a very delicate manner, and so that's Marcello Zarvis' contribution. It, it took all of these components, I think, to make that sequence work.
0: Well, the overall visual total bandwidth of the film is something that I really love what you and Ed did, and you know me, I'll see anything Ed does. And Hannah. Uh, and Hannah. Um, in terms of creating, the, the lighting in particular, we get that whole sensibility where at the farm, at, uh, at the tenant farm, we've got white light coming in through the windows. Hannah's design on the interior, it's white, white table, whitewash, because that's all the money you can afford is to whitewash things. But it's very fresh and it's very clean. We go to the law firm, and everything has that sickly golden color, which every corporate defense firm of the 90s, right. that's how they looked. Um, so you get a sickening feeling when you're there. But you use that tone, those the lighting, to really differentiate emotion for us. Um, and it also pauses you to, when you're looking at the tenants and you see there's a clarity there there is never anything that's obfuscating or covering up Wilbur's determination you know Wilbur's you know the facts of what he's been living with and dealing with whereas you go to the law firm and you've got the twisty turn hallways which I got to say Ed's camera work with some of those hallways and then and then what you did in post turning is just is fabulous but that really sets up, I think it's more subconscious for people as they watch, mm-hmm. but that is so beautifully designed, Todd, so beautifully designed.
1: Well, thank you, Debbie, for noticing all of those details and, and really feeling them, you know, um, because you're right, I think it's stuff, it's a, it's a the movie, the, def, the overall stylistic approaches is one of a kind of restraint and a kind of cool um, emotional distance that allows us to because, it, because that reflects Rob's temperament he is suspicious he's guarded, he doesn't have an orthodoxy, He he's discovering this story in the dark piece by piece and it keeps growing but that distance also allows us to shift our perspective from him to Wilbur's world, to the tenant's world, to the law firm, and feel that we had that mobility to, to, to move around, I would say that because we shot in the real places as mm-hmm. much as possible, and that started with Caff Law's firm interior that you described, but, but it was all there. That mm-hmm. was a, it was the most, Hannah and Ed and I would have chosen that location aesthetically, hands down. Even if it were not the actual place, and then it was the actual place. You know, that was just one of those fortuitous things where those triangular conference rooms and the and the glass, the striped frosted yep. striped glass partitions that we shoot through, uh, the, the 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 paneled windows along the top of floating walls, and the irregular windows that look out on the uh, skyline of, of downtown Cincinnati. All of that was what Rob looked at. And those were the corridors that he circled and that he became isolated within increasingly over the years. And, and people would give him, you know, people started to stay away from this guy, <laughs> mm-hmm. undermining the reputation of this firm, you know. And, and there was an uncertainty hanging over all of it that we wanted to feel. But, but because we were all in these places and because we were shooting in the, freezing bitter winter, there's also, I think, something that links all these different Mm -hmm. places and makes you feel that the world is not right wherever you are, and there's something bigger going on, and that everybody is linked by the results of corporate practices and governments that yield to the, the needs of industry. And regulatory systems that basically don't exist anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, we needed to feel that there's something larger that, that is linking all of the components of, of of the of the story and linking us to it.
0: And of course, you very keenly open the film with teens or you know young adults going to a reservoir at night in pitch black night and jumping into the water water is a common thread for everybody it's also like baptism by fire but right. who knew that that baptism was going to be a contaminant um exactly. your whole design there is just so beautifully structured Todd so I've I got to ask you what was for you the most challenging aspect as a director to encapsulate and bring this then to life in its final form.
1: I think we've touched, I think we've spoken about probably the biggest challenge is is organizing this kind of information, Mm -hmm. honoring the sort of emotional reserve of our central character, not forcing big speeches into his mouth that he would never have expressed. You know, but really, really trusting that an audience is going to be there to yearn to fill in the gaps and to invest in somebody like Rob and watch him change. You know, and 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 watch him suffer, but also watch him succeed. You know, and so that I think is, was just a part of the entire process from writing and beginning with a sort of beginning fresh by by meeting all the people and realizing that there's a lot of layers here, and there's a lot of conflict here, and there's a lot of uh, peril that these people are facing. We wanted to make that feel, you know, available to the audience, but keep them engaged. And I think that was just an ongoing challenge that went all the way into the editing process and the scoring of the movie and the timing of the color timing of the film and and all of it, but, but I think we were all in it together as a team, and we were surrounded by the real people. And so they were guiding us in the process and making us feel that by really respecting their lives and their experiences, we were on the right track.
0: And so after you were done, did you go get rid of all the Teflon pans in your house?
1: <laughs> I really didn't have any Teflon feet to be honest I think I have an old vintage pan that's probably Teflon. I just bought it because I like the color of it but I don't really cook on it uh not that I've been home <laughs> the real fact is that I have not been home because I've been working on this movie and it's taking me away from Portland uh and now I'm doing some work on my house while being away so so it's I miss I miss my home but I'll be returning to it one of these days
0: And that was director Todd Haynes talking about dark waters. It's dark waters is in theaters. Now it is going wider. It's expanding nationwide this week. It's been limited for the first week. Um, And again, I can't encourage you enough to see this film because the subject matter is something that affects every single one of us with everything in our lives Uh, with this particular chemical, with, DuPont uh, and the whole process and the fact that Rob Bollett really he went from being uh, a defense lawyer became a plaintiff's lawyer because he believed in something and hopefully this will even restore your faith a little bit in lawyers Um, I don't even have that much faith in a lot of them so (laughs) and I'm one Um, don't practice any but I'm one And now we're going to switch gears, and as soon as I find all of my notes here that I have all over the place today, I'm very excited to welcome this very talented writer-director, actor-turned-writer-director, Jarrett Martino, to talk about his new film, Donna, Stronger Than Pretty. Welcome, Jarrett. Thank you
2: so much, Debbie. I appreciate that
0: this has to be so exciting for you. The film is coming out today is international day for the elimination of violence against women. You've got, you're involved with the love wins film festival. Uh, the, you're one of the people behind that. You just got everything. Everything's coming up roses right now. Um, <laughs> in ter- in terms of it all, all converging at one time. Um, this is an incredible film, and I can't stress enough the fact for, for people that it's a narrative. It's not a documentary, although it is based on Jarrett's mother, Donna, her life. Um, it's not a documentary. It is a narrative, and um, it's beautiful to look at. I'll tell you all that right up front, too. Um, but what, what led you to tell your mom's story? And, you know, how willing was she for you to tell it? And it is very important that, you know, you're talking to me today on International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women because this is the power behind your mother's story, is that she did not let herself be a victim of violence. She got out. And she got out through self-empowerment, she sought economic equality for herself and her children. You being one, um, so you know what? What were the mechanics in telling this story? Because I can't imagine that that too many sons would want to tell their mother's story, and that too many moms would want their story out there.
2: Yeah, I was I was tired of being silent and. Um... And you know, having my mother's story, um, by stigma and stereotypes, so I really just wanted to um, tell it honestly. And uh, when we started exploring, uh, realizing the film, I met with um, a lot of other companies to to potentially collaborate, and um, obviously, you know, surrounding budget and all the other factors that go into realizing a film. Um, and they most of the time wanted to put this in a category or put this on a certain network. Um, and that really was never my, you know, my mom didn't have a Disney classic ending to her story. No man saved our day. And um, yeah, so I just really wanted to make sure that it was honest and truthful And there were so many moments in my mom's life that when we were writing the story, um, I realized that the strength really came from her inner strength. She didn't have a voice, um, and that was discovered as, you know, she lived her life. And very much through this film, um, she realized her own strength.
0: You know, now you cover three decades uh, of of your mom's life here. How do you sit down and start to call that down into something that is workable from a filmmaking standpoint?
2: I think it started, you know, I wrote this as a journal entry, so I never really expected it to be a film. I just kind of wanted to get our story out. Um, it was some deep-rooted pain. And I was already... Um, a few films in at that point, and I I chose to focus on creating awareness for subjects deserving attention, so we were covering a lot of other people's painful stories, and I I was on the other side of the lens at that point, and and it it was just really remarkable how people found their strength and um, told their stories, so I was inspired by being a filmmaker, and then I was Like I said, I never expected to share um, this journal entry. I wrote it in screenplay format because I've been in the industry since I was um, six years old. So it was just an easy way to get it all out. And then um, I connected with a a writer, uh, Pat Branch, who became our co-writer. And and just really so many other such support for... My family in the process, she she went through uh, the stage reading and table reads throughout the years and helped cast the film. Um, So I think it was just, it was a mix of a lot of things. And uh, the fact that um, had read my mom's journals and um, really got deeper than I ever could i mean i knew enough Mm -hmm. um from my own memory and pat really helped us um yeah fully realize her my mother's story
0: was it difficult for you as you were writing for some of the incidents that we do see on screen i i have to imagine that there are some that were even more horrific uh that your mom went through um so i'm curious so i'm you know were there any any instances that you made a conscious decision that, no, I'm drawing the line, we aren't going to show, we aren't going to go there.
2: Yeah, I really wanted to still make it something that an audience can digest. Um, I think that these films, anything that has to do with domestic violence really just um, gets swept under the rug and it's hard for people to, to see it and to even, you know, to even talk about it, so... Um, I was careful about, and I I didn't want this to be labeled just another, you know, domestic violence story because I feel we cover so much more um, conditioning and uh, really wanted the the main message to be women's empowerment.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you definitely, you definitely get that across because you make sure that uh, the character of Donna is surrounded by women. Um, Granted. Some less helpful than others, uh, such as her mother-in-law. But, you know, best friends that are there come hell or high water. And I think all of that just aids in uh, in getting across the idea of female empowerment. And sometimes you need others around you to empower you. And we really see that in the way you've structured this. Uh, And also in the way you cast it. You've you've done a wonderful job of casting uh, your principals in casting Kate Amundsen as as Donna. And then you bring in these other incredible women. Uh, And even Anna, Anna Maya Conley as young Donna. She's outstanding. She really sets the tone for what we're going to see unfold once Kate takes the mantle. Um, how how difficult was it casting all these female roles that intersect and are so reliant, uh, codependent upon one another to help tell this, get, get forth the idea of empowerment?
2: Well, yeah, Kate's been with us um, since the stage reading. Mm-hmm. And she was actually, a funny story, she wasn't going to come to the audition because she was running late and in between, a job and um, another audition that she had. And she doesn't like to be late. She's very detail-oriented. So um, anyway, she ended up showing up, thank God. And she, um, she's just so powerful. I knew as soon as she walked through the door that she was Donna. I mean, she just um, had so many qualities of my mom and, and um, just a beautiful actress.
0: Mm-hmm. But then you also you got to cast and surround her with people. You've got to surround her with Aunt Mary. Um, you've got to surround her with even the 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 headmistress the headmaster at the school. Uh, you really, it's not just all about her, but it's about all these other supporting players as well. Was it difficult to find all of them, and at the same time? find anthony fico to play nick
2: anthony was actually a recommendation from kathleen randazzo i was working with um uh, kathleen over at playhouse west for a bit and she had referred anthony so um they've, they've both been a part of the project for about seven years but we, we were really lucky i mean we shot for the most part in new york and there's just such a great pool of, of people there and a lot of them are theater-based. So mm-hmm. um, we, we just really got lucky with who submitted and, and how it all fit, you know, worked out.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, this is your first feature directorial, correct? It is, yes. So how helpful was it for you having a background as an actor once you stepped in, put your director's hat on? Does that help you, you know, did it help you technically because you were familiar with the process? Um, Were you reliant upon your DP, John Swigert, who does, I got to tell you, his cinematography is beautiful. Um, Or do you find yourself, you know, more of an actor's director because you can really relate to what your actors need? Yeah, I mean,
2: John is so strong. I think it was a mix of everything that you just mentioned. I mean, I I definitely relied on uh, my acting experience, and I trained with Larry Moss, so I really um, just looked for certain qualities on set if I didn't feel like it resonated or, you know, I knew the the story so well at that point that, um, you know, I just really wanted to be gentle with everything that I did as far as um, not being... I wanted it to still feel organic um, and I really just gave the actors we worked for five years together between the stage reading and then actually realizing the film so mm-hmm. um, I think they had the leads had a, a really great handle on on these characters and they actually met my family um, so it just became more than a movie a movie at that point it's such an extended family
0: mm-hmm and is it true you shot it over fifty locations? <laughs>
2: yeah, we had over fifty locations in New York, and then we did uh, some of the B-roll here, and we had one uh, one scene uh, in Silver Lake that we popped in there.
0: Oh my! That in and of itself, well. Th- Based on with that knowing that it's over fifty locations, I can see one reason, one of the reasons why you shot with the Blackmagic Ursa Mini, because it's more portable than most cameras out there.
2: Yeah, I'm really happy with. That. I've sh- I've shot on a lot of different cameras. I just always love the look. Um, that that's John's camera, so he you know is familiar with it, and um, I knew that he would be able to, and he ultimately color corrected the film. So, um, so yeah, it just gave us a lot of advantages that way.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's a great little camera. I played with it at the at, uh, the NAB convention in Vegas a few years ago. Um, it's like, I'm a kid in a candy store. When I go there, you've got all the new equipment that's coming out, the cameras, the lenses, the lighting, um, you know, all the packages, so, and I always love checking out what Blackmagic is coming up with because they come up with these really nice, affordable packages of camera and light um, that you can actually pick up for five $6,000, and you get beautiful results. Um, I think yours, though, is the... Yeah, I'm really happy with Yeah.
2: quality, and we also changed lenses, so each, we went through, you know, from 1966 through the early 2000s. and. We um, used vintage lenses, so um, with each decade that changed, we changed mm-hmm. the lenses. Um,
0: and I so noticed that.
2: that, you know, that helped.
0: Yeah, I like that. I noticed that because your look and even your visual tonal bandwidth in the first act of the film, um, you know, when we're in the 1960s, it, you know, it had it had a different a different palette to it and a different tactile sense. Uh, from the different lens um, and I really yeah, I
2: became fascinated by those um, sun flares that we kept getting mm-hmm. we, sh- we shot outdoors a lot so and then they you know ultimately as we changed the lenses we changed throughout the film but I really liked that they there, there was a few that got in there
0: Well, and, you know, and the thing is, when you think back to the 60s, it's like I think back to the 60s and, you know, you got a Polaroid camera, you're taking pictures even with your still cameras and you're getting the sun flares in there. And it's kind of a hallmark for, you know, right away it pinpoints the era, it pinpoints the decade for you. Um, And I think whenever you're covering a span of time the way you are with this film. I think that really behooves you and serves you well uh, to achieve your final product by doing that. But I think it's really nicely done um, with, your, with your lens change up through the decades. And I'm glad that it, it works so well with uh, the black magic. Yeah, and
2: things, I mean, this film really created a time capsule because there's so much that, So many locations that we shot in that are now changed. Mm -hmm. They were in the process of. We actually had that the beach home in one of the scenes. Um, The owner has held off on changing those old cedar shakes, you know, Mm -hmm. the siding for us because he knew we'd be in there, and um, he ultimately wanted to put vinyl. And uh, so, yeah, just things like that just worked out really, really well. Even some of the storefronts that haven't been changed since you know, the 50s or 60s um, have now been updated. So it's really interesting to go back to New York and, and see how, you know, we, we now have this, this footage of how these areas used to look, even just from a couple of years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I'm glad that the owner of the beach house waited to take away those cedar shakes uh, shingles because that is iconic on the eastern seaboard. I mean, I'm very familiar with South Jersey Beach, all the beaches down there. And no, mm-hmm. you have to have that. You take that. You can't put vinyl siding there. It's not the same thing. <laughs> it's no <laughs> longer. was very much
2: our conversation <laughs> before uh, when, he, when he presented the idea. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just great, really great support all around. And, you, um,
0: you lucked some, out. Some it worked out. You really lucked out. I mean, to have a cast that stays involved over the course of five years, to have your location people willing to, you know, delay their own home improvement projects um, for the betterment of your film, I mean, that's a testament to the project in and of itself, Jarrett. Um, because people don't aren't just going to willy-nilly make those decisions unless they really also believe in what you were doing Uh, because I'm sure you weren't giving them hundreds of thousands of dollars to use the house. Oh no. Yeah. (laughs) So
2: we really, we really did. I mean, throughout it was just a story that needed to be told. And it, you know, I always say that it it just created a life of its own. Like a lot of films do, but this one really took over and um, everything just aligned so well, and um, I'm really grateful. I mean, they provided a ton of healing for myself, my family, and created an extended family of a cast and crew. We, I mean, we worked with over 200 actors in this film um, by the time we had all the background in there, and um, just such support, and it, it, it was so nice to feel that type of su- support when you come from an environment that um, there's so much shame around domestic violence,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know. Through the process, and I, we partnered with the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and so many other um, women's organizations. We've cross-marketed with at this point, and I've had the opportunity to meet families, and um, I realized that you know we're we are one of the lucky families. We, you know, my mother survived, and we thrived. So, yeah. Um, Unfortunately, that doesn't.
0: It doesn't always happen. Happen for everybody. But you know, now I have to ask you about the Love Wins Film Festival. What is this all about? Tell me. So, uh, my business
2: partner in New York, we we started um, Love Wins Productions together, and we have a really great space. Um, <laughs> In Roslyn, New York, and we started a film festival that's launching. It's opening January sixteenth, which is actually my mother's birthday. Um, we just wanted to create a space for like-minded and heart-centered, um, message-driven films.
0: Now, how can people submit? What kind of what kind of films will, will you be accepting for this film festival? Is it anything? Do you put um, features, docs? Short, um, and it,
2: we're going to be exclusively on Film Freeway, and that will be up on the Love Winds Production site.
0: Now, is is there uh, a website for the Love Winds Film Festival that filmmakers can go to now if they want to submit?
2: Yeah, that will be up um, officially launched on January sixteenth. Okay, and it's uh, LoveWinsProductions dot online, uh, dot net.
0: Okay, that's helpful. And, um, they can find this on
2: Facebook. Also, the Movie dot com will have a link uh, to get over to Lovelands Productions and uh, the film festival.
0: So, what kind of themes will you be looking for in your submissions to this festival? You know, we have so many different festivals out there. We have horror festivals. We have, you know, short festivals. We have drama. We have experimental festivals. Um, so I'm curious, what kind of themes you'd like these films to be with Love Wins? Yeah, we're really
2: just, we're looking for message-driven films that help shape and change the global consciousness. Um, so pretty much everything from you know, drama to um, pretty, we're accepting everything, really. Just, it, it depends on, I guess, the submission process will be
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, really dependent on what the, the message within the film is.
0: Mm-hmm. It's always good to see another festival uh, pop up, especially one that is looking for something like this, um, with, for change, positivity, all of this good stuff. Um, now, what will your involvement with the festival be? Will you be... I will,
2: um, I mean, I'm going to be going through some of the submissions, um, once they reach the competition Mm -hmm. end of it. Um, we do have, uh, about five programmers right now, and, um, so yeah, I'll be involved that way, and then, um... Just putting the festival together, Um, we really wanted to make a a unique experience for filmmakers, Um, have industry networking. We're going to have holistic healers and um, music and and all different things that are available that are going to separate us from other festivals.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, will you be screening Donna, Stronger Than Pretty, as a special screening at the festival for the inaugural fest? You know what? I
2: have. Um, I want to give space to to another filmmaker, and at this point, we're submitted to over a hundred festivals for Donna. So, kind of waiting uh, to see what happens on that end of it. Um, but yeah, maybe you know, maybe in the future, we would, you know, the second or third year
0: mm-hmm.
2: for the festival, we would um, have a separate day for the screening of Donna.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, where can people see Donna now? Just waiting on the Fest circuit or do we have any you know, we're
2: waiting on the festivals right now, exploring sales agents. Um, so kind of you know, the next couple of months are going to be a crucial time as far as what we where we land.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, Jarrett. Where do you where do you see yourself going as a director and storyteller, um, given Donna Stronger Than Pretty and its themes, um, and and the Love Wins Film Festival? Where do you see yourself going uh, with future films in terms of what you will be bringing, be it through writing and directing, directing writing and handing it off to somebody else? I'm, I'm curious. What kind of stories will you be telling? I mean, I really started the company um,
2: for my own acting career and just to create projects. And then it became, um, you know, one project after another, another, just creating awareness for all these different subjects. And um, I don't know. I never really thought um, too far in advance for the directing end of it. Um, My focus right now is just creating opportunities for diversity and inclusion, the LGBTQ community, and, of course, women's empowerment. That's been a theme throughout almost everything I've done. So um, I have a project right now called Worlds Apart, and um, we just hired a female director for that, and that's a, uh, a series. And um, and then we have a feature film, Mrs. Santa. That's a romantic comedy. so Aww. Um, <laughs> So just yeah, I think just creating the space and an opportunity and opportunities for um, diversity, inclusion, and in women. I've tried to hire a predominantly female crew since 2013, since I started the company.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to see what you deliver next, Jarrett. Um, if Donna Stronger than, than Pretty is any indication of what we can expect from you in the future uh, because it is it's a well done film as I said John's cinematography is beautiful you even got a nice underpinning of score happening in there you even got in some needle drops you actually had enough yeah. in the budget to, to get some needle drops in there woohoo <laughs> <laughs> we did
2: and I um I do have to compliment our our costume designer, Stephanie Lindsay, because she really took us through. Um, she owns Vintage Habit, and she was able to take us through so many decades. And, and that really helps between you know the hair and the makeup and um, the wardrobe were so crucial in this film. And we moved so quickly, as you know. So um, couldn't have done it without, without any of them.
0: Well, yeah, the the costume, the hair and makeup that anytime you're doing a period piece and here when it's not just a period, you're spanning, you know, three decades and they were very stylistically different decades from the 60s to the 70s, the 80s into the 90s. Um, very, very distinctive from a fashion and hair and makeup uh, standpoint. So that along with your lens change ups for the decades that really, really is an added bonus to telling this story.
2: Definitely, yeah. Super grateful for everybody that donated their their time and all those in the cars. We had over fifty vintage cars as well. So um, all these all these things really helped not only tell the time, but the production value and the overall quality of the film.
0: Well, I got my eye on that blue cattle on that blue convertible. I know, right? <laughs> I, I got my eye on that one. Let me tell you, Jarrett. <laughs> well, unfortunately, <laughs> we are all out of time today, Jarrett. This has been a delight having you on the show. I hope you'll come back yeah, again.
2: Yeah. yeah, maybe I'll bring my my mom and our co writer if that's okay. Yeah, um, you know, as we progress they would love to uh,
0: yeah once you get some more festivals and uh, as you move ahead with the love wins film festival when you get ready for you know the real push for submissions and when you've got your festival date locked and loaded definitely i'd love to have you back Jarrett.
2: i appreciate that debbie and thanks so much for the work you do i know you know i was always taught that life is within the details and you know, There's not too many opportunities that filmmakers get to have these types of conversations and all the years of work that go into it. So um, thanks for taking the time and creating this platform. It
0: is an absolute pleasure and privilege to do it for you and for all the other filmmakers out there, especially my my beloved indie filmmakers, my low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget uh, filmmakers <laughs> who need all the, all the help and all the love that they can get. Um, Jarrett, again, thank you so, so much. And, uh, you know, everybody will be able to keep up and find out. And as you, you know, as, and I'll be checking the website every once in a while, com, to see where you are in terms of festivals and whatnot, to let people know.
2: I appreciate that. We, We love all the support and, uh, it helps.
0: Well, thank you, Jarrett. And you have a fabulous rest of your day.
2: You as well. Thanks, Thanks so Jarrett.
0: Much. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.
0: And that was Jarrett Martino talking about Donna, Stronger Than Pretty. Um, I can't wait to see where it goes on the fest circuit because it is something that uh, I will encourage people to see as it emerges in different markets in different places. That is all the time we have today. That is all the time we have for November. Um, next week, I'm excited. Alex Ruiz is back. Alex was here in 2016 in studio for Quien es Quien. Well, now he's got a play opening uh, called Overtime. So he's going to be joining us again next week. So I can't wait to, to catch up with Alex and find out what kind of trouble he's getting himself into. And I'll have more exclusive interviews with potential award contenders for award season so until next week i'm debbie elias this is behind the lens